hearts. They were just loyal to the end. What a great virtue. Welcome again to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In today's class, we'll be looking at the letter to the church at Pergamum, the third in the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation 2. Like Smyrna, it was a local church that had faced severe persecutions but remained faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your Bible, if you can, to Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. Our study will begin in chapter 2, verse 12. Now here is Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and I want to read to you verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Sixty-five miles north of the city of Smyrna, was the ancient city called Pergamum, sometimes referred to as Pergamus, but usually Pergamum. It was not a great commercial city like Ephesus or like Smyrna, but it was a city known for its culture. It boasted of a library of nearly 200,000 volumes, and remember, all handwritten. It was the greatest library in the world, second to the famous library at Alexandria. It also had been a capital city for almost 400 years before Ephesus became the capital city of Asia Minor. It was an impressive city built upon a hill that overlooked a valley, and from this hill the Mediterranean could be seen. It was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. Sir William Ramsey said this, beyond all other cities in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city. It was also a very religious city. Now, it is in this city of culture and books and government officials and religion that a church arose. We're not sure how this church was founded. The New Testament doesn't tell us anything about this church beyond what we read here, what I just read to you. But most assume that it was either founded by the Apostle Paul or some of the believers from Ephesus. Ephesus was sort of the mother church in the Asia Minor area. But it was to this little church that Jesus addressed an important message here in Revelation chapter 2. Now, remember where we are in our study of Revelation If you get lost, you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, because we have an inspired outline of this book. Here's what we read in chapter 1, verse 19. Therefore, 
write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, Jesus gives an outline to John of the flow of the book of Revelation. First of all, he says, write the things which you have seen. The things that John had had seen that the Lord is talking about is a vision of the Lord himself in his glorified state. That's chapter one. That's the vision of what John had seen. That's in the past. John saw it. He wrote about it. Then we jump ahead. Forget the middle part right now. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. That's prophecy. It refers to chapters 4 through 22, which encompasses the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then what is known as eternity. So chapter 1, the vision of the glorified Christ. Chapters 4 through 22, future, prophecy, the things to come. But notice verse 19, John says in the middle of this, he said, and the things which are. Write about the things that are taking place right now. Now, of course, that's from John's day, from John's perspective. And the things that were taking place right then and there in John's lifetime is chapters 2 and 3. They tell us about seven churches in Asia Minor in a postal route, a highway route. And Jesus has a unique message for each of these churches. Now, we've already looked at two of them. We looked at the church at Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. They, they lacked devotion. They loved Christ, but not like they used to love him. And the Lord, after commending them, condemns them for that. Secondly, last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna. It was the suffering church. There may have been an intimation in the letter to them that they feared persecution or they feared the, the suffering, but it's a letter of encouragement. There is no condemnation to the church at Smyrna. Everything is positive. I know all about your suffering. Now, we continue studying the third church. It is the church at Pergamum. What is this church characterized by? Let's see. We're going to see five truths about this church that Jesus outlines. First of all, he tells us that he's the correspondent to the church or the author of this letter. We notice verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, as in every letter, there is a unique description of Christ that is appropriate, that is fitting to the church. And here you have a unique description. He is called the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why? What, is, what does that mean? Well, the Roman Empire had the authority to judge people. That's precisely what Paul says in Romans 13:4. They do not have or hold the sword in vain. The sword is a symbol. It's a symbol of judgment, usually of the right to execute, the right of capital punishment. The Roman Empire apparently had given Pergamum, the city of Pergamum and its government officials, the rare power of capital punishment. As I said, it was symbolic of the expression, the sword. So when you think of sword in the biblical context, especially in the New Testament, you think of executing judgment. It's a symbol of absolute authority, the authority of judgment. Now, to those living in Pergamum, 
Rome, as we said, had given the authority to pronounce judgment on any Christian and kill him at a moment's notice. But the church needed to understand that the true judgment, the true judge, the one who all authority belonged to, was Jesus Christ himself. The two-edged sword stands for the word of God. Sword stands for judgment, but the two-edged sword stands for the word of God, which is the, uh, which is the tool that, that the Lord uses to judge. Let, let's look back at chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 16. In his right hand, speaking of Christ, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came what? A sharp, two-edged sword. We also read, if you'll hold your place in Revelation 2 and go to Revelation chapter 19, this is speaking of the coming of Christ when he comes to judge the nations. We read this in chapter 19, verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Then verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the sword is a sword of judgment. It is the word of God which tells someone that they are judged. It cuts, it deals with them, it exposes sin, it slays all falsehood. We know that the Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and so you combine that. That's Hebrews 4, verse 12. And that's what this church, this church of Pergamum needed to hear because this church had some wonderful qualities, but they, they had a subtle problem, a, a problem that was not really obvious, and it needed to be exposed. It needed to be exposed and then cut out, dealt with. And that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God reveals truth. It reveals error. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. It deals with sin in an authoritative judgment. And that's what Christ is saying that he's going to do to this church. You see, sin had entered this congregation in such a subtle way that it had to be cut out by the sword of his mouth or else it would destroy the entire church. So the correspondent, the author of this letter is none other than Jesus Christ, who is about to tell the church at Pergamum that I am going to judge you. I am going to deal with you. I'm going to cut and I will cut out some sin, significant sin in your midst. So we move from the correspondent, which is Christ, to the condition of the church. What was their spiritual condition? Notice the Lord starts off by first stating the virtues of this church. It was a good church. Had some problems, but it had some good qualities as well. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Jesus begins by saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The city of Pergamum was called by Jesus the place where Satan's throne was. This was Satan's headquarters. Amazing as that seems, that's what he's saying. In other words, in those days, this is the place, this is the territory where Satan set up his capital city. Who would have thought of that? But that's what Jesus said. This was the center of his operations. First Peter 5, 8, 
says that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And that is absolutely true. He does walk about. However, what we learn here is that while he's walking about, his capital city, at least in the first century, was in Pergamum. Contrary to what people might think, Satan's throne is not in hell. He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Therefore, his throne is on earth. It is not in hell. He will spend all of eternity in hell, but his throne is on earth. And in the first century, as I said, it was in the city of Pergamum. Where is it today? We don't know. We're, we're not told. But wherever his throne is, it must be a religious center of some kind of, of cult and ism and perhaps all kinds going into that city. And why do I say that? Because that was the way the first century Pergamum was. It was a religious city. It was a center for religious activity. They had several things going on there. First of all, they had a huge altar to Zeus. It was 40 feet high, and it stood 800 feet on a hill, or a hill that was 800 feet in the air, 40 foot high statue, an altar to Zeus, and it looked like a great throne on the hillside. And all day long, this altar to Zeus smoked with the smoke of sacrifices offered to the Greek god Zeus. It looked just like a throne. It was actually known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Also, this was a city for the center of uh, the worship of the God of healing. He had temples there. And you have seen, I'm sure, the symbol of the God of healing, because it is used today as the sign of the medical field. It's a snake wrapped around a branch. That's what they worship. They worship snakes there. In fact, there was a temple dedicated to this god of a serpent. Inside this temple, scores of non-poisonous snakes crawled on the floor, and whenever someone had a disease, they would lay at night on the floor of the temple, and if one of the snakes touched you, then it was supposed to bring the healing touch. Remember, the Bible refers to Satan as a serpent. Pergamum also was the center for the worship of the Roman emperor. They had to say, the citizens there had to say that Caesar is Lord or die. And there was a host of other temples as well. There was all kinds of religious activities going on. Jesus said, I know that where you live is where Satan reigns and where he rules. And I know it's tough. That's what he's saying to them. I know what you're going through. I know it's hard. The pressure to abandon Christ and the gospel message that was great in Pergamum. And it's difficult today as well. It's difficult for us, but imagine how difficult it was for those in Pergamum. And yet, Jesus commends them. He commends them because they did stand fast. Notice what he says, You hold fast my name and did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What he's saying is in in the midst of satanic opposition, this little church remained true and faithful to the Lord Jesus. They did not deny Jesus Christ, either his name or the truths of the word of God. Now, sometime in the past, there had been a great persecution that took place in this city. It just broke forth against the Christians of 
Pergamum. We, we don't know the details of this, except that we read here, one of the members of the church named Antipas, he was killed rather than deny Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you've kept my name, especially my faithful one, my witness, Antipas. Now, we don't know any more about Antipas than what is written here in Revelation 2, verse 13. But we do know that Jesus approved of his steadfastness in the face of death. Listen, so much so that he gave Antipas his own name. He called him my faithful witness. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus calls himself the faithful witness. What a, what a great honor given to this man, Antipas. So this was a church that, that would not, that did not give in to satanic pressure to deny Christ. When the Roman authorities said, say that Caesar is Lord, they just shot back, Jesus is Lord. That, that was a great thing. They were, they were loyal to Christ and to his word. That's what the faith means. They were loyal to him. Unwavering steadfastness in the midst of all kinds of pressure. So they were doctrinally strong. They were faithful to the Lord. They would not budge from their faith in Christ. They were just loyal to the end. What a great virtue. So think about this. How can Satan then penetrate a church like that? What does he do to a church like this? His threats for their lives, that that didn't work. Antipas stood up and said, no, Jesus is Lord. So this is not a church that's going to be intimidated by the authorities coming to them and with Satan behind them roaring like a lion seeking to devour them. So here's what he did. The devil is a genius. He's a mad genius, but he's a genius. And he changed his strategy so that he made inroads as a deceiving serpent. Not a roaring lion, but a deceiving serpent. Here's what he did, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And what is he talking about? Satan sent infiltrators into Christ's church at Pergamum, who held to two erroneous beliefs. They were influenced by false teachers. They brought that teaching into the church. Number one, he says, is the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. Now, who was Balaam and what was his teaching? Let's go back. Let's turn back to Numbers. To Numbers chapter 25. But I'm going to tell you what leads up to this. Balaam, it won't take the time to go through all of this, but Balaam, you can read on, on your own, Numbers 22 through 25. But Balaam was an ancient Gentile, not Jewish, a Gentile prophet in the Old Testament who was really like more of like a soothsayer, but he did speak prophetically. He was hired by Balak, not to be confused with Balaam, but Balak, king of the Moabites, He was hired by him to curse Israel. Balak had heard what Israel had done coming out of Egypt, how they defeated all of their enemies, all the other nations around them. And so Balak said, I'm going to hire Balaam 
to curse them because he was afraid of them. He was afraid of them. However, as the story unfolds in the book of Numbers, every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, God said no. And when Balaam did finally open his mouth in reference to Israel, out came a blessing instead of a curse. And so Balaam came up with a devilish plan for the, for the king of Moab. His plan was, if you cannot curse the people, then corrupt the people. That's how you destroy them. Forget about cursing them. I can't curse them. God won't let me curse them, but I'll tell you how you can corrupt them. So now, now you know the background. Look at Numbers 25, starting at verse 1. This is the corruption. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot. Talking about the people of Israel, the sons of Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, meaning the children of Israel ate with the Moabites and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal, that's a false god, Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Now, how do we know this is what, this is what Balaam recommended? Because in Numbers 31, a few chapters later, here's what we read. Numbers 31, verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel, he's talking about the women here, through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Notice, it was through the counsel of Balaam that all of this happened. Now, let me explain what's going on here. What Balaam said to Balak is this, I can't curse this nation. They are a God-blessed people. I cannot, I'm not allowed to curse them, but have your women seduce the men of Israel, and that'll corrupt God's people through sexual immorality and pagan idolatry. That was his counsel. The doctrine of Balaam, folks, is to corrupt from within. It's to pollute God's people from the purity of their faith. See, Israel was to be a distinct people, not like the pagans around them. They were to be distinct. They were to be different. They, they ate differently. They dressed differently. They were unlike the pagans around them. And they were, that's why they are known, they were known as a peculiar people. That's not a put down. It's to say they were different. They were, they were considered unique, not like anybody else. Yes, the Jewish people are different because they are God's chosen people. Through the Jewish people would come the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Satan hates them so much and has tried to destroy them over the centuries. In tomorrow's class, Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this study on Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum. Be sure to be here. Remember, at any time, you can log on to our website, versebyverseradio.org, to learn more about this program and to listen again to today's lesson, You may also call Verse by Verse at 727-239-0306. That phone number again is 727-239-0306.
As a reminder, Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry. If you have been blessed by this message, would you consider sending a gift to help maintain this program? You can donate online by going to our website, www.versebyverseradio.org, and clicking on the Giving tab. Until next time on Verse by Verse, I'm your announcer, Ken Anderson. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Thank you so much for listening to Faith Talk 570 and 910. We truly appreciate all of you. And this week, we're spending time discussing ways that we can connect with you even more. If you use Facebook and you like our station, how about letting us know by liking our Facebook page? It's a small thing, but believe me, it means a lot. And it also gives you a chance to stay 